0: Hey, you're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. So does does the Russian Parents Network have like an origin story of some sort? Was there a day that you were like, we need a Facebook group? Yes. This is Victoria and Michael Job.
1: So um, this started when uh, Victoria was pregnant with her... Preg- no. no, just gave birth to can our can first child. Oh, story? yes. Okay,
2: fine. All right. It's, it's a bit of a funny story because...
0: The yes, story of I the Russian Parents Network starts 14 pregnant years pregnant ago, pregnant after the birth of their first child. child. Victoria was feeling lonely, needed a community of other parents. It's not even the only Facebook group for Russian parents in the tri state area of New York, but it seems to be the largest 19,000 members.
3: I think it's also a testament to just how large the Russian speaking community is and how much we look for each other and want that
2: space um, to interact because we have these unique experiences coming from that part of the world.
0: And on this network, you can find things you need, like a Russian-speaking nanny or that long-lost episode of Chiburashka. Like, you,
1: you know, the Russian cartoons you used to watch as a child. Where do I find those to show my kids, right?
0: Michael and Victoria are not Russian. They're not ethnically Russian, they're Jewish, and nor were they born in Russia. They grew up in Latvia when that was part of the USSR. In fact, Russian was only a label that was slapped on them after they emigrated in the 80s.
1: Russian is just an easier term for, for people around us, to, for Americans to understand, rather than explain that I'm from this like little place that fell apart from the Soviet Union. It's like a whole story, right? Whereas Russian makes sense to them.
0: Even as people back in Latvia, back in Ukraine, put laws in place to assert their language, their cultural identities... Here in the diaspora, the Russian label mostly stuck, to the point that Michael felt like it was obvious. The Russian Parents Network was an inclusive term.
1: It just meant somebody from the former Soviet Union.
0: So there was no confusion about what this group was really for, who this was for.
3: Never. No. no, I don't think so. No.
0: And then came the war. Russia invaded Ukraine. Parenting-related posts gave way to aid appeals.
3: You know, how are you wiring money to your loved ones back home? You know, who has the latest information? What news outlets are you following?
0: And who and how to help best. A 14-year-old ballet student from Kiev wants to continue her studies. Does anyone have housing in New York? A three-year-old boy went missing on a boat when escaping with his grandmother down the Dnieper River. Can you share his photo as widely as possible?
3: Like it's all, you know... Parenting has kind of gone out the window at this point, and it's just all about
2: the community coming together, like, okay, our homeland is in crisis.
0: And with this crisis, the name Russian Parents Network... Calling
1: it Russian, especially when Russia is a specific country, a specific place of origin, and now a specific aggressor, uh, you know, becomes a little bit different, I guess.
0: An identity shorthand that was basically convenient suddenly felt complicit.
1: Now it made a lot more... There's a lot more of an impact to that, right, to that statement. It's not just about the land you're from, it's also like there's an obvious divide.
0: It took all of five minutes to rename the group, the Russian Speaking Parents Network, and announce the change in a post. But neither he nor Victoria was prepared for the response.
1: The amount of comments that came in when the, like within seconds of doing that was kind of overwhelming. A lot of the comments were incredibly positive.
0: Well, not only positive, but like, thank you for finally doing this. I feel so good. That's true.
3: Which is interesting because, right, even though there wasn't a direct
2: ask yeah. to do this, there, like I said, there was nothing going on in the group that was like, oh, gosh, we got to do something about this.
0: They tapped into something that people in the group were feeling and maybe had been feeling for a while. This war is certainly not the first time that Russia has been the aggressor and attacked a neighboring country, whether Georgia in 2008, eastern Ukraine in 2014.
2: Things don't come out of the blue. <laughs> things happen, and that makes us reevaluate and look at things differently. And like, okay, well, this is how we used to th- say things before or do things before, but it's not fitting anymore. <laughs> you know, world changes, we change, and maybe this is just another reflection of that change.
0: This is rough translation. I'm Gregory Warner. <laughs> Vladimir Putin spent years turning Russianness into a weapon, restoring Russian greatness, protecting Russian speakers, reuniting the Russian world. These were excuses for military invasions. But for the first time, large numbers of people who proudly wore that Russian identity want to throw it aside. And the swiftness of that shift was really something to watch. You know, the Soviet Union fell 30 years ago. But really, in the past two weeks, I've seen more people say, don't call them Russian anymore. And so last week, I sat down for a conversation with two writers, one trying to renegotiate her relationship with Russian.
2: If it's the first language you learn, I think it occupies a certain part in your body.
0: The other with his Russian-speaking audience.
3: Every Russian creator is so consumed by this sort of conundrum of being Russian in the world. I can't really be a part of that dialogue because there's nothing special about being Russian.
0: My conversation with Michael Eidoff and Maria Reva about the complicated role of Russian speakers in wartime when Rough Translation returns. Hey, we're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. So what we're going to do for you in this episode is not what we usually do. This is a completely live conversation that we've just condensed for you here on the show. It is a Twitter Spaces conversation with two writers who I admire. Maria Reva, a Ukrainian-Canadian writer whose short story collection, Good Citizens Need Not Fear, was a finalist for the 2020 Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize. Reva was born in Ukraine and moved to Canada with her family in childhood. She grew up in Vancouver. My other guest is Michael Idov, born in Latvia. He's an American screenwriter, novelist, and director. His work includes the film Lado, nominated for a Palme d'Or, and his hit German series Deutschland '89. He lives in Los Angeles, and his recent piece for Vanity Fair was entitled "Language Is Never the Enemy: Why I Will Not Write in Russian as Long as Putin Is in Power." Maria, let's just start with you. I mean, do you you still have family in Ukraine, right? So, so how are they holding up? <laughs>
2: Uh, Yes, um, I have family in uh, Kiev and Kherson and Cherkasy as well. Uh, The relatives in Kiev, um, they uh, made their second attempt to leave uh, a couple of days ago, and we just learned that they... Uh, were successful. They um, have now crossed the border to Poland. Uh, The challenge with them is that one of the the members of their household um, is a survivor of multiple strokes. Um, She, uh, you know, was bedbound, disabled. And uh, of course, that caused uh, great difficulty. And they they managed to uh, hire a private ambulance to uh, get them all across. So we're super grateful for that. Um, I've heard of other, from other Ukrainians who have, you know, relatives there who haven't heard from their relatives in a few days. So uh, yes, uh, the relatives in Kersen, um, they, uh Curson is effectively surrounded right now, uh, even though civilians managed to push off the uh, occupation of the city, but uh, my relatives there are staying put for now. Um, so that's the update from me.
0: And in Kherson, there was a. Uh, it's a very Russian-speaking city. That there was a um, pro-Ukrainian rally at, at, at a few days ago, I believe. And there was they, they spread out a Ukrainian flag.
2: Yes, there was a, a big march um, onto the center of Kherson. Um, I believe what uh, they wanted to do with that also is to show the world that um, even though this is a traditionally Russian-speaking city, they don't want to be a part of Russia.
0: Michael. Um, just with you, anyone in particular in Russia or Ukraine that you're keeping in touch with or that you're worried about right now?
3: Uh, Yes, of course. I, um, I don't have any relatives in, um, uh, in Russia or Ukraine at this point. Uh, but I do have uh, a couple of friends. I have a a friend who's a well-known musician who's, uh, in Kiev right now. So I'm in touch with him constantly. And, uh, Uh, we're in touch with a few, uh, people on the Polish Ukrainian border on both sides. Um, our friends from Berlin are organizing humanitarian aid convoys there. And one of my Ukrainian friends is helping on the, um, on the Ukrainian side of that. And of course, uh, you know, when it comes to Russia, um, I'm just looking kind of amazed and aghast at the exodus of sort of almost every brand of thinking Russian, uh, you know, um, from computer engineers to, you know, musicians and actors, and, um, of course, journalists and, uh, et cetera, et cetera, just spread out from Armenia to Turkey, to Portugal, to, uh, Germany. And it's, uh, it's quite something to behold. And uh, just going back to what uh, Maria said about son, and, and what you said about this, um, the pro-Ukrainian rally, what, what Putin is accomplishing right now is actually something absolutely astonishing if you think about it. Um, he's creating millions of anti-Russian Russian speakers, which is something that has never existed in the history of Russia as a country.
0: Maria, I feel like you've thought about this because your op-ed for the Globe and Mail was on loving and hating Russian. Um, And so I'm wondering if we can wind back the clock, go back to that and start with the kind of the loving part. Um, You were born in Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union. What was your relationship to the Russian language growing up?
2: Um, So I grew up speaking uh, Russian and because I left Ukraine at the age of seven, um, I, I didn't learn... Uh, ukrainian very much i I wasn't able to absorb sort of the flourishing of ukrainian again uh over there uh so so i grew up speaking the language of my household and uh we you know we used to comfortably speak it um even though you know we were never pro pro putin in any any sense of the word um but uh now we're really rethinking our, our relationship with the language uh we have friends in um in in kiev you know who have been responding to our messages and for the first time in U- ukrainian we've never heard them speak ukrainian to us before and actually just last night over dinner we um in in my patchy way i was trying to join the ukrainian conversation around me um so my, my dad does speak uh ukrainian um my my mother has uh some knowledge of ukrainian as well mm-hmm. so i think since the invasion um i've You know, I've personally come to think of the language as, uh, you know, a national security issue, really, because uh, in previous uh, statements, Putin has said that uh, uh, he sees the limits of the Russian world where the Russian language is used. And he used uh, this excuse of, you know, so-called protecting Russian speakers in Ukraine. He used it as an excuse to uh, invade Ukraine. So that has really changed my relationship with the language. I am trying to learn more Ukrainian now. Um, when I can go back to Ukraine, I would like to speak Ukrainian.
0: You know, I'm curious, you, you had the, the fascinating uh, episode that you t- described in that op-ed. Um, you write about an experience, and this was a couple of years ago, I guess, watching the official New Year's address by President Zelensky of Ukraine. And I... Um, I don't want this to sound flip because I know that right now we are all, uh, many of us, I should say, are glued to Zelensky's media appearances. But I feel like in normal times to turn on something like the, you know, the New Year's greetings of a president, um, you have to be pretty homesick. <laughs> and and <laughs> so tell the, uh, the story of watching Zelensky and, and trying to uh, connect.
2: Uh, yes, so... I would say that is a tradition over there that, you know, the president gives these New Year's uh, addresses and people do tune in and listen. And this was um, his New Year's address uh, on December 31st, 2019. And yeah, my family and I tuned in. And I just remember this feeling of my comprehension just dimmed in and out. And I could tell he was trying to spread this message of unity. uh, And he, the address actually contained multiple languages in it. And I could feel the mood of it, but I couldn't understand all of it myself. And that was a a really uncomfortable feeling. Um, And I wanted to understand all of it. and then we tuned, you know, out of this morbid curiosity, we turned into tuned into uh, Putin's New Year's address. Uh-huh. And I understood the whole thing. And it sounded like, um, you know, this warning of, about the Russian military. That's what he chose to talk about in his New Year's address. So it was awful to be able to understand that message in full, but not the message of the Ukrainian President,
0: yeah, you write about this, and you say, I- "I'd never step foot on Russian soil, but with queasy recognition, I knew what he wanted me and millions of Russian speakers around the globe to feel the call of home." Um, why do you say that that you know you knew what he wanted you to feel?
2: It was an emotional reaction when you know, if it's the first language you learn, I think it occupies a certain part in your body. Um, I actually feel it like coming from a different part of my body than when I speak English. Uh, English comes from kind of the top of the head. Russian comes from this kind of chest area. So that language for me, I mean, that represented my lifeline back to Ukraine. It was my lifeline back to my relatives there, uh, our summers at the dacha, right? That's that's how, that's how the language we used to joke in, tell stories in. So that's, that was that feeling of home for me. Yeah.
0: The language that connected you back to your relatives in Ukraine was now being employed in this warlike message from, from President Putin.
2: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that,
0: that call, I mean, do you, yeah, Michael, do you, do you want to react to any of this? Do you, do you recognize this, this feeling or any reactions to what Maria is saying?
3: Well, um, I have a very different relationship with the Russian language and a very different circumstance because, um, I come from Soviet occupied Latvia and, um, I come from a Russian speaking Jewish community there. So technically my speaking Russian and my knowledge of Russian is a, is an accident of history and geopolitics because, um, I should normally be speaking either Yiddish or Latvian, yet that's how things turned out. And um, and unlike uh, Maria, I've spent the last 20 years of my life uh, writing in English and in Russian and for an American audience and for a Russian audience. And um, so my relationship with the Russian language is... It's not just about being bilingual, it's about being fully bicultural. And Hmm. with, you know, with absolutely no malice toward Maria, I have to say that um, part of my personality is being um, routinely annoyed by people who, um, uh, for whom sort of the Russian language, who consider themselves bilingual, but for whom Russian language is something nostalgic, uh, something about the you know those evenings at the dacha. I actually have kind of an allergy to that, to be honest, because for me, biculturalism has always been about uh, knowing knowing the culture as it lives and breathes. So you can't consider yourself bicultural, I thought, <laughs> um, unless you are up on the latest developments in. Indie rock and hip hop and movies and TV and internet memes. And if you can basically keep up, you know, sort of the most, uh, complicated conversation with, you know, the most plugged in people in the country, like that's biculturalism to me. And of course I've expended incredible effort keeping that up over the years and decades. So for me, that's what Russian is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well actually I want to ask you a question about when that cultural relationship with russian as you say and with with russian culture became complicated and ultimately untenable um there was uh so in 2012 if i have the dates right you you moved to moscow and you started writing some very successful tv series um one of them i i watched um london grad which is um Centers on the Russian community of London.
2: Олег. часто нарушает многочисленные законы Соединенного Королевства, но ему удается избежать It's
0: really funny. It's got these very three dimensional characters. Um, but then you describe about how that series that you put a lot of work into was then marketed in Russia.
3: Right. Um, well, uh, the thing about grad was it was written and largely filmed before the. Russian annexation of Crimea and this sort of explosion of uh, um, chauvinist kind of uh, imperialist uh, sentiment that followed in the in, in the official culture with sort of this new political reality when uh, you know I remember the head of PR at the at the network telling me you don't realize what we're walking into uh, people are getting beat up on the street for wearing an American flag or a union jack on their t-shirt uh, in the provinces. Uh, no one's going to watch this outside of Moscow, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, so surprisingly released the series without any cuts, it suffered no censorship whatsoever, but they did add an incredibly annoying uh, marketing slogan to it. Uh, so uh, the slogan that almost became part of the title. Um, so instead of just being London grad uh, on every poster and every trailer, it was uh, referred to as London, uh, London grad, which is sort of like London grad, how our guys do it, or like watch our people, watch how our people do it or something, um, which really recast the series in an interesting way. It almost made it sound like this series would be not about Russians who are fully integrated into uh, the Western world, but Russians somehow like triumphing over it, which was not um the goal of the series at all. as I wrote in the in the Vanity Fair uh, piece, it was probably the first ever um Russian pop cultural product that did not recast immigration as this sort of tragic exile. um the subversive message of it was that. London and Moscow are just, are just two cities and you can live in one or you can live in another. And that's how every character in the series uh, approached it. And, um, and that was the main message that I tried to get across in all of my Russian language, um, TV and film work. Uh, Russia is part of the world. It's just a country. It's not an empire. It's not in, uh, an existential conflict with the world. It's, you know, it's just a place and there are many other places. It's a simple thought, but it, yeah, it was a little uh, uh, subversive for uh, for the market when I started doing these TV series and films, and, um, and then it was more and more subversive, and now it's not even true anymore. Uh, and that's part of uh, what led me to sort of realize that I can no longer speak to that audience. I, I don't know what to say to it.
0: Um, I guess I'm wondering from you, Michael, Whether this is a change, whether Russian audiences have become more receptive to the warmongering, to the calls for expanding the borders, or were those expansionist dreams always there and you just hadn't hadn't seen them, hadn't appreciated it?
3: It's a very wide-reaching question because, first of all, how do you measure sentiment in a country where, you know people break out in cold sweat at the sight of a journalist's microphone or, uh, you know, I mean, one of the points I kept making lately on uh, on Twitter is that, uh, you know, stop doing Russian man-on-the-street interviews and Vox Pops and population surveys because, you know, with all kinds of dissent becoming so quickly criminalized, uh, it's completely pointless to, you know, to run after people and ask them if they agree with what their government is doing because, if uh, today uh, saying something wrong is you know is a fine, tomorrow it's uh, 15 days in jail, and uh, the day after tomorrow it's you know being shot in the street as a as a traitor. We don't know. We don't know how far it uh, goes, but we can talk about it um, through the prism of just basic facts. You know, for most young Russians uh, who were born uh, when Putin was already president. The only social lift, you know, the only way upward is uh, is through government structures and government-funded structures, and these are being run as sort of an ideological dictatorship, but not a Stalin-era dictatorship, more like the Brezhnev-era dictatorship, when everyone knows that almost everything uh, they're you know they're supposed to say and sign their name under and vote for is basically, you know, bull, but uh it's just it's the price of doing things and everyone knows um that th- this is nonsense that just needs to be uh observed, you know, uh this sort of classic Russian thing, uh, same thing that they did with the covid precautions, you know, we're going to do the absolute least to not get fined or to not get in trouble, you know, we're going to wear masks on our chins. We're going to uh buy fake uh, vaccination certificates uh, just to have it in the system that we are vaccinated. It's the same kind of thing. They're going to apply the same sort of lackadaisical energy to supporting the war. Uh, They're just going to do whatever needs to be done to not get into trouble. And that is the poisonous lesson that Putin's era has taught the overwhelming majority of young Russians.
2: Just to chime in, I think this is also showing us that um, when our civil liberty liberties begin to be uh, eroded, it happens gradually, right, slice by slice, and often it doesn't seem like it's a it's a big deal, um, or they don't, you know, they don't affect us directly in our in our perception. So this is for us to also remember that once this starts happening, we do need to fight um, as early as possible because it becomes harder and harder and the risks to your personal safety become higher and higher. And I I have been watching the uh, protesters in Russia coming out onto the streets. And I see them and I am very, very uh, happy that they are doing this.
0: Maria, I, I would love to ask you about what happened when you were texting with your family and they started speaking to you for the first or speaking to your sister, I believe, in, for the first time in Ukrainian. Um, tell me sort of what that moment, where, what, what happened with that moment and what did it mean?
2: Right. Uh, so I, I don't equate uh, Russian with Putinism necessarily Uh, but uh, that moment uh you know when we were hearing them speak ukrainian to us it really reinforced uh that uh it really is a a question of national security at this time um i i know that kiev authorities have asked uh people out in the streets to speak ukrainian where they can uh there was a local uh news station in odessa reporting that more and more people are switching to Ukrainian. It's not just a matter of symbolism. Um, It's also a way to um, identify saboteurs. So there are um, saboteurs out on the streets who are, you know, asking for directions uh, and trying to find information from civilians. Um, For example, they put uh, this kind of fluorescent paint onto buildings, um, which uh, serve as targets for uh, airstrikes. So if someone comes to you on the street and they cannot speak a word of Ukrainian, that raises suspicious. Now, so it it is a matter of national security.
0: I'm part of the the uh, a Russian Parents Network, and they recently changed their name to the Russian Speaking Parents Network. There was no complaint, even calling themselves the Russian Parents Network is in New York. They were actually inviting Ukrainians and Latvians and. and people from Israel. I mean, anyone from the former Soviet Union, that was just implied. But when they changed it to Russian Speaking Parents Network, they got uh, this huge um, outpouring of gratitude uh, from people who said, thank you for including me. Thank you for uh, sort of upending this kind of Russian Russian language hierarchy. And I guess I'm wondering is, as, as you yourself, Maria, are, are turning to learn Ukrainian, if... Um, other immigrant communities from the former Soviet Union are are um, waking up to a desire to to be more inclusive to to slough off the colonial reasons for speaking Russian.
2: Yes, and I think that distinction between Russian and Russian speaking is more important now uh, now more than ever. Uh, I think that, for example, Ukraine has been thought of uh, by a lot of folks out here in the West. Judging by the reactions to my book, as a part of russia or a province of russia there um when i read uh you know reader responses uh to, to my work a lot of it is yeah a lot of the responses just casually say oh this book was set in russia even though multiple times in this book and on the book cover it says ukraine so um so i think that differentiation between russia as a country and russian speakers who were not born in russia is a very important one to make.
3: I agree uh, with Maria completely, by the way, here. And the funny thing is, um, part of me considering myself for uh, so-called Russian-American as opposed to Russian-speaking American is because America made me uh, think this way. I never thought of myself as a Russian uh, in Latvia because neither Latvians nor Russians would let me think that my identity has th- there has always been uh Jewish and as you know uh probably in much of the former Soviet Union uh Jewish is considered to be a uh, an ethnicity almost a race uh definitely not a religion so I thought of myself as uh you know ethnic an ethnically Jewish <laughs> Latvian uh, who happens to speak Russian and so the first time in my life I re- got I heard myself referred to as Russian was after coming to uh, to the U.S. and uh, it's true that um, it's sort of the American point of view that uh, that pushes people from all over the Soviet Union or the uh, Russian imperial sp- sphere of influence into this Russian identity. And I think that the fact that uh, there's some pushback to that is is very healthy and uh, and good. I think the most valid Russian voices uh russian language voices to i want to hear right now in uh in film in tv should be coming from uh from underrepresented russian speaking minorities should be coming from uh the people who would not be speaking russian if not for the uh russian imperialism and it's obvious that ukrainian voices are are first <laughs> in, in that line but also um you know, I I want to hear from Kazakhstan. I want to hear from, uh, from Yakutia, from uh, you know, for Cherechnya, for God's sake. For uh, basically, I think that a lot of sort of Russian language content that's uh, that's clear of Putinism will have to come from the victims of Russian imperialism, not perpetrators of it
0: coming up, what are the special responsibilities or opportunities for Russian speakers to engage with the people back home? My conversation with Michael Idov and Maria Reva continues after this break. Hey, we're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. So there is this map that has haunted me, really since the Russian military first started amassing in great numbers on the eastern Ukrainian border back in early January. This is a map that I first saw in 2014 when I was on my way to Ukraine to cover what was called by Ukrainians the revolution of dignity. Uh, This was the uprising in Kiev that led to a change in regime and really set Ukraine on this uh, turn toward Europe and this collision course with Russia. Back then, a lot of people thought that Ukraine would not survive the revolution, that it would uh, split in half with Russia's help. And this map, it basically showed the outline of Ukraine divided into two halves, the blue part and the red part. The blue part on the West was marked Ukrainian speakers, and the red part was marked Russian speakers. And not to get too deep into this, I mean, there's a lot of truth into this map, but it also felt like it bought right into Russian propaganda because it ignored the fact that many Ukrainians are and were bilingual. They can go back and forth between both languages, and many are proud of that.
2: Uh, yeah, I actually printed out for this interview the Article 10 of the uh, Constitution of Ukraine. And it actually, it has, as part of that article, it says, free development use and protection of Russian and other languages of national minorities of Ukraine shall be guaranteed in Ukraine. I wanted to add that in.
0: Well, actually, yeah, so Maria, t- talk about, I think, in terms of bilingualism, I, one thing that's been stunning and terrifying but very interesting to watch is Zelensky's use of Russian the way he ha- he and his officials have spoken to Russians and i don't mean their their comments toward or about Putin but rather their addresses to russian soldiers for instance um saying you know you don't want to be here you know that it's wrong to be here even using cursing in his almost familiar sort of way and um It seems to be, I'm I'm curious if you've seen that or or thought about the the strategy there in in reaching out to to Russians.
2: Well, yes. I mean, what Russians are being told through state media right now is that uh, Russian is being banned and uh, that, you know, there's discrimination against Russian speakers in Ukraine. And Zelensky, by speaking Russian, right, he's actually a a native Russian speaker. He's showing them in a very direct way that that is not the case. Um, He also doesn't take uh, an absolutist approach to Ukrainian either. He switches back and forth uh, depending on who he's addressing. So I quite enjoy that aspect of of him.
0: So my last question really for you both is about, well, kind of like what's the duty of Russian speakers in this moment in terms of speaking across the border to Russians and, as challenging as that is, um, is it more necessary in this moment? There's a, a site uh, right now um, called uh, Papa Pover, Papa Believe. It's exhorting Russian speakers to call their family back home. And it even gives advice on on sort of negotiating with somebody with vastly different political and, and ideological thinking than you. It says, don't lose your temper, be patient, and really encourages the Russian diaspora, but I guess really any Russian speaker in the diaspora to do the emotional work of speaking to family members who they may have at this point nothing in common with uh, ideologically, or not even see the reality the same way. Um, so I guess I'm wondering. It sounds like both of you have you know are are wrestling with your in different ways with your relationship with the Ruski Mir with the with the Russian world, and I guess I'm wondering at a time when we're distancing ourselves. Is there also an imperative to lean in closer? Uh,
2: Yes, I I believe so. I have an example for you. Uh, So my relatives in Kurson, their neighbors were talking to family in Russia about what was going on. And this was the the early days of the war. Um, They were talking about the bombings that they were hearing. And the relatives in Russia, they basically laughed at them, saying that it wasn't true what kind of fake news you know, are they are they talking about? Uh, then these uh, rel- these neighbors in Kurson, they sent them photos of the bodies of soldiers that were now on the bridge, the the main bridge in in um, And only then uh, did uh, their relatives in Russia believe them. So that was a huge change. Um, they said that yeah, they weren't being told in the media what was going on, but I I also understand that you know some people might not have even believed the photos they might they might have even said these are fake so that was a positive outcome of that specific interaction that they were able to break through but uh, i i imagine that it's a quite a challenge in other cases
0: michael you called your decision not to write for russian audiences anymore a sort of egotistical self-care <laughs> and i'm wondering if um how you feel about engaging with Russian audiences to the extent, you or others, whether or not that's necessary or possible?
3: If we're talking about the duty of Russian speakers to the world right now, I mean, our our number one duty is to help Ukraine. It's very simple, actually. Financially, logistically, you know, with words of support. And uh, um, I see that People from Ukraine are actually reacting very positively to um, to sort of unalloyed expressions of support, uh, and uh, you know, us going to um, to rallies around the world under the Ukrainian flag, and and just making it very clear which side of this we're on. That's the number one priority. As as my number two priority, I see. Um, trying to figure out something that I've always um, shied away from and, in fact, kind of disliked, which is the diasporic Russian culture. Figure out what that might look like. And that's going to take years, probably. With any luck, (laughs) you know, the Putin regime will, uh, will come to an end and the Russians and... The diasporic Russians can uh, can start figuring this out together. If not, you know, there's the the Kasparov way, like const, sort of continuing to be kind of a a Russia expert and comment and commenter and and try to influence things within Russia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there's the Barishnikov way, which is to sort of to embody and keep propping up the light of. The Russian culture while completely cutting off Russia, the state. You know, he never uh, visited ever since um, uh, defecting, uh, even after the regime change. He never toured in Russia. You know, uh, when he wants the Russian audiences to see. His shows, he uh, stages them in places like uh, Latvia or Poland or Lithuania, so they, you know, could come across the border and see them there. So, but at the same time, you know, he's not uh, reinventing himself as an American. So, to me, the road ahead is the Baruchnikov way right
0: now. Well, that's all we have time for. But thank you so much, uh, Michael and Maria, for this for this nuanced discussion.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. And thank you to uh, Rough Translation NPR.
3: Thank you, Gregory. And thanks, everyone, who was uh, tuning in.
0: Today's show is produced by Pablo Arguez and Adelina Lancianese edited by Bruce Oster and Luis Treyes. Special thanks to Matt Adams, who guided us through our very first Twitter Spaces conversation. Let's do it again soon. And thanks again to our guests, Maria Reva and Michael Idov, as well as Victoria and Michael Drob from the Russian Speaking Parents Network. And not to forget the Rough Translation Bosses Network is Neil Carruth, Didi Skanky, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grunman. Liana Simstrom is our supervising producer. John Ellis composed our theme music. We want to bring you more conversations like this one that unpack what is happening in Ukraine and the ripple effects around the world. If there's some topic that you're interested in us covering, drop us a line. We're at roughtranslation at npr.org. We're on Twitter at Roughly. I'm Gregory Warner, back in two weeks with more Rough Translation.